Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to the LSE. My name is Richard Davis. I'm a fellow here. And we're very lucky today to have Daniel Suskind, who's going to talk to us about his new book, A World Without Work. Uh, it's a fascinating read, and it's a really prescient um, topic. Just in terms of housekeeping, I just wanted to let everyone know that the plan is to record this session uh, and to produce a podcast of it. Uh, this doesn't always work due to technical constraints, but that is the plan. Um, so there'll be t t some time for questions at the end um, uh, where you can get your views across, and those will feature in the podcast. Daniel is a fellow at Balliol College, Oxford, uh, and this is his kind of his second book. I think he's going to explain that to us, but it's really his first sole-authored book. And having recently done my first book myself, I can tell you it's, it's quite a feat. It's a fantastic read, and so let's all welcome Daniel Tillessi. Great. Well, thank you very much for that warm introduction. Great pleasure to be with you this afternoon uh, to share some ideas with you from my new book, uh, A World Without Work. Uh, and what I want to do in the next 30, 35 minutes or so are share four important themes with you from that book. The first relates to the capabilities of machines uh, and why it is that I think economists have tended to underestimate uh, the capabilities of machines. I then want to say a little bit about the idea of technological unemployment and how I think about it and various distinctions I make in the book, I then want to set out the three problems that I think we're likely to face in the 21st century as a result of the technological changes that are taking place. And then finally, I want to close on a note of optimism to explain why, in spite of these problems, I'm still uh, optimistic uh, about the future. So first, machine capabilities. So what are the tasks of driving a car making a medical diagnosis, and identifying a bird at a fleeting glimpse have in common. Well, these are all tasks that until very recently, leading economists thought couldn't readily be automated. And yet today, all of them can be. You know, almost all major car manufacturers have driverless car programs. There's countless systems that can diagnose medical problems, and there's even an app developed by the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology, uh, which if you take a photo of a bird, it'll tell you what species it is. So in, in my work, I argue that this wasn't simply a case of bad luck on the part of economists. They were wrong, and the reason why they were wrong is very important for thinking about machine capabilities. They were relying on a mistaken assumption about machine capabilities. And in particular, they were relying on the belief that machines must copy the way that human beings think and reason in order to outperform them. So when these economists were trying to determine which tasks machines could or could not do, they imagined that the only way to automate a task was to sit down with a human being get them to explain to you how it was they performed that task, and then try and write a set of instructions based on that human explanation for a machine to follow. Now, this particular view was very popular in artificial intelligence at 1.2. Uh, and I know this personally because my dad, who was uh, my co-author in writing a previous book, The Future of the Professions, 
uh, in fact, wrote his, his doctorate on artificial intelligence and the law back in the 1980s at Oxford. And he was really part of the vanguard. So he, in fact, co-developed the first ever commercially available AI system uh, in the law. This was, in fact, the home screen design for that system. A few sniggers there. Uh, my dad assures me this was a cool screen design uh, in the 1980s. Never been entirely convinced of that. I love this. They published it in the form of two floppy disks. <laughs> Time when floppy disks genuinely were still floppy. And essentially what they did together was adopt the same approach as the economists. Sit down with a lawyer, get them to explain to you how it was they solved the legal problem, and then you tried to, and then they tried to build a system based on that human explanation for others to navigate for, the, for others to navigate through. Essentially, what they did was they built a gigantic decision tree. The decision tree had about four million branches through it that my dad and his colleagues in the computing uh, computer science laboratory manually, painstakingly crafted together. So the point here is that economists didn't pluck their view of machine capabilities out of thin air. They were closely following a view that had been dominant in artificial uh, intelligence for quite a long time. This belief, again, that machines, that building a machine to perform a given task meant observing how human beings perform that same task and copying them. These traditional AI researchers in whose footsteps the economists were following were what I call purists. They were closely observing intelligent human beings and trying to build machines in their image. And they did this in various ways. Some tried to actually replicate the physical structure of the human brain. Others tried a more psychological approach and tried to copy the thinking and the reasoning processes that human beings appeared to be engaged in. And a third approach was to try and draw out the actual rules uh, that human beings seemed to follow. Um, when they were performing a task. And this was the view that economists adopted. And so based on this view of machine capabilities, economists argued that if human beings could readily explain how they performed a task, could readily articulate the rules that they followed, then those tasks were routine. And those could be automated. Because you could write some instructions based on that human explanation. Otherwise, for tasks where human beings couldn't explain themselves, those tasks were thought to be non-routine, and those were out of reach of machines. This distinction might seem a little academic, but just think how widespread, actually, I think it is today, not only in economics, but everywhere. Think how often you hear people say that machines can only perform tasks that are predictable or uh, repetitive, rules-based, or well-defined. Now, these are all different words that we use for the word routine. And those three tasks that I mentioned before, those are all classic cases of non-routine tasks. So, you know, sit down with a doctor and ask her how she makes a medical diagnosis, and she might be able to give you a few rules of thumb, but ultimately she'd struggle. She'd say things like, it requires creativity, instinct, intuition, judgment, in short, she'd probably struggle to articulate exactly how it is she makes a medical diagnosis. And that was the reason why economists thought things like that couldn't be automated. If a human being cannot articulate how they perform a particular task, where on earth do we begin? 
they worried in writing a set of instructions for a machine to follow. I think 30 years ago, this view was right. The argument that I make in the book is that today it's looking shaky, and I think in the future it's simply going to be wrong. Advances in processing power, data storage capability, and algorithm design, particularly in the world of machine learning, mean that this routine versus non-routine distinction that we so often use, I think is diminishingly meaningful, diminishingly useful. So take the task of medical diagnosis, just to see what I'm getting at here. Just a few, uh, or relatively recently, a team of researchers at Stanford announced the development of a system which, if you give it a photo of a freckle, it will tell you as accurately as leading dermatologists whether or not that freckle is cancerous. So how does it work? It's not trying to copy the judgment of a human doctor. You know, it knows, it understands absolutely nothing about medicine at all. Instead, it's got a database of, I think it's about 129,000 450 past cases, and it's running what's essentially a pattern recognition algorithm through those cases, hunting for similarities between them and the particular photo of the troubling lesion in question that you've given it. It's performing the task in an unhuman way, based on the analysis of more possible cases than any human doctor could hope to review in their lifetime. It no longer matters when trying to automate the task of medical diagnosis that a human doctor probably couldn't articulate exactly how it is they make a diagnosis. Now, I think there's some of us who really dwell upon the fact that these machines are increasingly not built in our image. Um, take IBM's Watson, the computer system, which, as many of you will know, rose to fame in 2011 when it went on the US quiz show Jeopardy, and it beat the two human champions at Jeopardy. What I love about this is that the day after Watson won on Jeopardy, the Wall Street Journal ran a piece by the great philosopher John Searle with the title, Watson Doesn't Know It Won on Jeopardy. <laughs> right? And it's brilliant. That's completely true. You know, Watson didn't let out a cry of excitement, uh, didn't call up its parents to say what a good job it had done, didn't want to go down to the pub for a proverbial drink. The system wasn't trying to copy the way that those human contestants thought or reasoned, but it no longer mattered. It still outperformed them. So this Watson victory was a practical victory, but it was also really an ideological triumph as well. You know, when my dad was working on AI back in the 80s, most AI researchers were purists. Again, closely observing human beings acting intelligently and trying to build machines like them. But that was not how Watson was designed. Its creators didn't set out to copy the anatomy of a human player, the reasoning they engaged in, or the rules that they appeared to follow. They were pragmatists instead, not purists, taking a task that might have required intelligence when performed by a human being and building a machine to perform it in a fundamentally different way. And what I think we see now is a generation of systems crafted, built in this pragmatist spirit, you know, crafted to function very, very differently from human beings, judged not by how they perform a task, but by how well they perform a task. And in this book, uh, uh, and, and this I argue in, in the book, is the mistake that I think many economists have made in thinking about machine capabilities. This is why so many of us, uh, I think, have systematically underestimated the capabilities of machines. 
you know, the view of machine capabilities, which that routine versus non-routine distinction relied upon, was a purist one. You know, again, this belief that machines have to copy the rules that we follow. But given the technological progress that's taking place, this is no longer the case. You know, today's most capable machines simply do not ride on the coattails of human intelligence as they had to in the past. And in crafting that routine versus non-routine distinction, I think economists were on the wrong side of what I call the pragmatist revolution, drawing on ideas about machine capabilities that simply no longer held. And this shift, I think, from purism to pragmatism raises the question, if this routine versus non-routine distinction is no longer useful, what should replace it? How else should we think about machine capabilities? And I think lots of recent scholarly work and books and articles and reports have tried to identify the new limits of machine capabilities, and they've used a variety of different approaches. The obvious problem, though, with marking out the limits of machines is that any conclusions you reach are going to become outdated pretty quickly, and this is what we see you know, time and time again. You know, those who spend time trying to identify these boundaries are like the proverbial painters of the fourth rail bridge in Scotland. A bridge so long, they supposedly had to start repainting it as soon as they got to the end, because by then, the paint would have started to peel. You know, spend time trying to come up with a new account of what it is that machines are able to do today, and by the time you finish, my bet is that you'll probably have to start again and readjust. So the argument that I make in the book is that actually a better way to think about technology is to stop trying to identify specific limits. You know, it's difficult to say exactly what it is that machines are going to be able to do in the future, but what I do think is pretty certain is that machines are going to be able to do more than they can today. You know, over time, machines are gradually but pretty relentlessly going to encroach further and further into the realm of tasks performed by human beings. And this, I think, is a more valuable way uh, to think about technology. And I call this far more general trend task encroachment. And when you look at the three main capabilities that we as human beings draw on in the work that we do, whether it's manual capabilities, those that involve dealing with the physical world, cognitive capabilities, our abilities to think and reason, or our effective capabilities, our capacity for feeling and emotion. I think what you see are machines gradually encroaching on more and more, of ta more, and more tasks that require each of these capabilities. And, and, and that's what I try and set out in the book. And I think it is this process of task encroachment uh, that really has quite important implications for thinking about the future of work. And that's what I want to turn to now, the idea of technological unemployment. In the book, I distinguish between two types of technological unemployment. One, the first, is what I call frictional technological unemployment. You know, here, there's still lots of work to be done. The challenge is that not all workers are able to reach out and take it up. And there are three main reasons I think we might see, in fact, we already see frictional technological unemployment. The first is what I call the skills mismatch. This is the first reason work might sit out of reach. Displaced workers simply don't have the skills required for the new work created by technological progress. And I think this is probably the most familiar 
reason uh, for frictional technological unemployment, so I won't say any more about it. The second reason is what I call place mismatch, where displaced workers don't live in the same place uh, that new workers created. And that might, might sound relatively trivial, but it's important to remember that remember, you know, back in the early days of the internet, um, there was a moment when it seemed like these sorts of worries about location you know, would simply no longer matter. You know, people spoke about the death of distance uh, and how the world is flat. But what we actually see today in thinking about looking for work, the place where you live matters more than ever. The third type of mismatch that I think is responsible for this frictional technological unemployment is what I call the identity mismatch. And this is perhaps less familiar. And this is where displaced workers have an identity rooted in a particular sort of work and are willing to stay unemployed in order to protect that identity. So think of adult men, for instance, in the US displaced from manufacturing roles uh, by new technologies. Now, there's quite an interesting argument that says many of them would prefer not to work at all than to take up so-called pink-collar work. Now, it's a really unfortunate term, but the term is designed to capture the fact that many of the roles currently out of reach of automation are disproportionately done by women. So, teaching. 97.7% uh, of preschool and kindergarten teachers in the US, for instance, are women. 92.2% of nurses, 82.5% of social workers. And so those are the sorts of mismatches that I think are responsible for frictional technological unemployment, where there's work to be done, but people aren't able to take it up. And I think many of us tend to be comfortable with this idea of frictional technological unemployment. We can readily picture a future where there's lots of work to be done, uh, but for these sorts of reasons, people aren't able to, to do that work. But as we move through the 21st century, I think the more controversial argument I make in the book is that we might see the emergence of a second type of technological unemployment, one where there's simply not enough work to be done, full stop. And I call this structural technological unemployment, distinct from frictional. And I think this is a, a less comfortable idea uh, for many people. The starting point for thinking about whether something like this might ever be, ever be possible, a world where there's simply not enough well-paid work for people to do, has to be the fact, I think, that ever since modern economic growth began, people have worried about the economic harm caused by new technologies, and those anxieties have broadly turned out to be misplaced. Now, if we look back over the last few hundred years, there's actually very little evidence to support their primary fear, that technological progress would create large pools of permanently displaced workers. And the reason for this is that when we look back at what actually happened in economic history, what we see is that the harmful effect of technological change on work, the effect that really preoccupied our anxious ancestors, that turns out to only be half the story. You know, yes, machines took the place of human beings at performing certain tasks and certain activities, but they didn't just substitute for human beings. They also complemented them at other tasks that had not yet been automated, raising the demand for people to do those activities instead. Throughout history, there have in fact been two fundamental forces at play. A harmful substituting force, but also a helpful complementing force. 
And in the clash between these two fundamental forces, our ancestors tended to pick the wrong winner. Now, time and again, they either neglected the complementing force altogether, or mistakenly, they imagined that that substituting force would somehow overwhelm it. So that, I think, is the context in which we have to think about the future of work, that people have worried in the past and, and been wrong for these reasons. So given this context and looking to the future, I think there can be little doubt that as this process of task encroachment that I described continues, that that harmful substituting force is going to grow stronger. Workers are going to be displaced from a wider range of tasks and activities than ever before. The question then follows, why can we not simply rely on that complementing force to overcome that effect as it has done for the last 300 years? That seems to me to be the big question we have to engage with when thinking about the future of work. And the answer, I think, and the argument that I make in the book is that task encroachment actually also has a second pernicious effect. It not only strengthens that substituting force, but I think it also is going to weaken that complementing force that has helped us in the past as well. So to see what I mean by this, I think it's useful to distinguish between the various ways in which that complementing force has actually helped us uh, as workers in the past. Um, now, the most obvious way I think that the complementing force has helped workers is by making them more productive or more efficient at certain tasks. So, you know, a taxi driver can use a sat-nav system, for instance, to follow unfamiliar roads, or an architect can use computer-assisted design software to design more complex buildings. In the future, new technologies in that sort of way are no doubt going to make particular workers more productive at certain tasks. But my worry is that this is only going to help, continue to help workers, so long as they remain better placed to do those tasks than a machine. But as task encroachment continues, that becomes less and less likely for more and more tasks. So, you know, take sat-nav systems again. Today, they make it easier for taxi drivers to navigate on unfamiliar roads, making them better behind the wheel. But this is only going to be the case so long as human beings are better placed than machines to drive a vehicle from A to B. In the coming years, this may no longer be the case. Software may drive cars more efficiently and safely than us, and at that point, it will simply no longer matter how productive human beings are behind the wheel with or without a sat-nav. These machines will simply do it instead. I think chess provides another illustration of the, the spirit of my worry about this productivity effect and how it might fade in the future. So for some time, Gary Kasparov has celebrated a phenomenon uh, that he calls centaur chess, uh, which involves a human being and a machine working together as a team. Uh, and Kasparov's thought was that such a combination would beat any chess-playing computer uh, acting alone. Human plus machine is always better than just machine. And this, in a sense, is the productivity effect in action, isn't it? New technologies making human beings better at what it is that they do. The problem, though, is that Kasparov's centaur has effectively now been decapitated. 2017, Google took uh, AlphaGo Zero, the Go-playing machine uh, that trains itself, tweaked it so it could play other board games 
and gave it the rules of chess. They called the new system Alpha Zero. And after only a day of self-training, it was able to beat the best existing chess playing computer in a 100-game match without losing a single game. After that trouncing, it's hard, I think, to see what sort of role human beings might have alongside a machine like that. As The Economist Tyler Cowen put it, the human now adds absolutely nothing to man-machine chess-playing teams. And I think there's a deeper lesson here. Now, Kasparov's experience in chess led him to declare that human plus machine partnerships are the winning formula, not only in chess, but across the entire economy. And I think this is a view that's held by many others as well. And you hear it all the time, human plus machine. But Alpha, Alpha Zero's victory, I think, shows that that's wrong. Human plus machine is stronger only as long as the machine in any partnership cannot do what it is that human beings are bringing to the table. But as machines become more capable, the range of contributions made by human beings diminishes until partnerships like these eventually just dissolve and the human in human plus machine, I worry, becomes redundant. So alongside the productivity effect, there's also a second, less direct uh, way that that complementing force has helped human workers in the past. Uh, so very crudely, if we think of the economy as a pie, uh, as economists like to do, Technological progress has made the pie far bigger. As productivity increases, incomes rise, and demand in an economy grows. The British pie, for instance, is more than 100 times the size it was, uh, 100 times the size today than it, than it was 300 years ago. So I call this the bigger pie effect. And again, it's very intuitive to see how growth like this might have helped workers. Yes, some tasks might be automated and lost to machines, but as the economy expands and demand for goods and services rises along with it, demand will also rise for all the tasks that have to be done to produce all those new goods and services. And these may include tasks that haven't yet been automated. And so displaced workers can find work involving those tasks instead. And you see the sort of bigger pie effect uh, being appealed to by lots of economists when we're thinking about the future of work. So Larry Summers, when reflecting about being a a student at MIT, a graduate student, said back then, the stupid people thought that automation was going to make all the jobs go away, but the smart people understood that there was more produced, there would be more income, and therefore would be more demand. David Orta, probably the leading economist thinking about the impact of technology on, the, on work at the moment, argues that people are unduly pessimistic. As people get wealthier, they tend to consume more, so that also creates demand. Uh, Kenneth Arrow another giant of the field. The economy does find other jobs for workers. When wealth is created, people spend their money on something. In the future, economies will no doubt continue to grow. Incomes are going to be larger, I expect, than ever before. And demand for goods, in the spirit of those sorts of observations, is going to soar. Yet I worry that we cannot necessarily rely on this to bolster the demand for the work of human beings, as it has done in the past. Why? Because just as with the productivity effect, that bigger pie effect will only help if people, rather than machines, remain better placed to do whatever tasks have to be done to produce all those new goods. 
And as task encroachment continues, again, I worry that that becomes less and less likely. And I think we can already catch a glimpse of this sort of phenomenon at work in particular corners of the economy. So think about UK agriculture since 1860. You know, this particular part of the British pie has grown dramatically over the last century and a half. But it has not created more work for people to do. British, uh, British agriculture now produces about five times as much uh, as it did back in 1860, and yet it only requires a tenth of the number of workers to do it. It's not just a story about agriculture. Think about UK manufacturing, exactly the same. A sector that now produces about 150% more than it did back in 1948, and yet requires 60% fewer workers to do it. Now, these stories are, of course, only unfolding in particular corners of the economy, but what I think they capture is the essence of the problem with that bigger pie effect. Rising incomes may lead to rising demand for goods and services, but that does not necessarily also mean rising demand for the work of human beings. Finally, I think there's also a third important way that the complementing force has helped human beings in the past. Technological progress has not only made our pie bigger, but has also changed the pie too. So if you think of the British economy again, not only is it more than 100 times the size it was 300 years ago, but the output that we produce and the way in which it's produced have completely transformed. So 500 years ago, the economy was largely made up of farms, 300 years ago, factories, today of offices. This I call the changing pie effect. And again, I think it's very intuitive to see how these sorts of changes might have helped displaced workers. At a certain moment, some tasks might be automated and lost to machines. But as the economy changes over time, demand will rise for other tasks elsewhere in the economy. And some of these newly in-demand activities may again not yet have been automated. And so displaced workers can find jobs doing them instead. And again, I think we can see lots of economists appealing to this sort of idea. So David Dorn, technological progress will generate new products and services that raise national income and increase overall demand for labor in the economy. Joe Mulcair, the future will surely bring new products that are currently barely imagined, but will be viewed as necessities by the citizens of 2050 or 2080. And again, I think in the future, it's inevitable that the economic pie is going to change, perhaps in ways that are unimaginable or inconceivable to us today. But in exactly the same way, my worry is that as task encroachment continues, it becomes more and more likely that machines, rather than human beings, will be a better place to do whatever new tasks have to be done. And I think if we look at newer parts of economic life today, we might worry that something like this has already started to unfold. So if you go back to 1964, the most valuable company in the United States back then was AT&T, with 758,611 employees. Fast forward to 2018, though, the largest company was Apple, with only 132,000 employees. 2019, it was Microsoft, with only 131,000. More generally, uh, there's research suggesting that in the year 2000, new industries created in the first decade of the 21st century accounted for just 0.5% of total US employment. So I think hopefully you'll be able to detect a common thread running through the arguments and the ideas that I've just shared, which is that most of the time, 
I think when we talk about the future of work in the stories that we tell and in the models that we all build, we tend to imagine that human beings are special. You know, we realize that as our, as our economies grow and change, the demand for tasks and activities to produce everything is going to grow and change as well. But I think all too often, we take it for granted that people will remain the best choice or will remain best placed to perform many of those tasks. We imagine that when human beings become more productive at a task, then they'll be better placed than a machine to perform it. That when the economic pie gets bigger, human beings will be better placed to perform those newly in demand tasks. That when the economic pie changes, human beings will be better placed to carry out whatever new tasks have to be done. And I think until now, this has been you know, a safe bet. Uh, my fear, though, is that as this process of task encroachment continues through the 21st century, and machines just keep on taking more and more tasks out of the hands of human beings, these sorts of assumptions might turn out to be wrong. And this, I think, is how captures why I think we might find ourselves in a world with less work. As time goes on, machines continue to become more capable, taking on tasks that once fell to human beings. That harmful substituting force continues to displace workers in the familiar way. And for a time, that helpful complementing force is going to continue to raise the demand for these displaced workers elsewhere. And this, I think, is the challenge for now in the 2020s and the 2030s. The challenge is one of frictional technological unemployment, how we make sure people are able to do the work that has to be done. But look further afield, and as task encroachment goes on and on, and more and more tasks fall to machines, that helpful complementing force, I fear, might fade away and be weakened as well. Human beings will find themselves retreating to an ever-shrinking set of tasks, and there's no reason to think, there's no economic law that says that there must be enough demand for those tasks to keep everyone who wants it in well-paid employment. And that setting, our challenge becomes one of structural technological unemployment. The world of work then comes to an end, not with a big bang, the sort of thing you might see um, in, in, in some commentary about the future of work, but instead a withering, a sort of withering in the demand for human beings as that substituting force gradually overruns the complementing force and the balance between the two no longer tips in favor of us as it has until now. So I think it's worth in thinking about the problems that this is going to present us with to be very clear that what I describe in the book is not some technological big bang after which lots of us wake up and find ourselves without work because the robots have taken all the jobs. I simply don't think that's going to happen. You know, work is going to remain for a very long time to come. But what I do think and what I am trying to describe is that how as we move through the 21st century and technological progress just continues its relentless advance, I think there's a real risk that more and more people might find that they're not able to make the sorts of economic contributions to society that they might have hoped to make in the 20th century. And it's this, perhaps less dramatic, but I don't think any less significant challenge that presents us with three problems. And let me just say very quickly what those problems are. The first is an economic problem. Fundamentally, I think of the challenge that we face as being a challenge of inequality. I don't think it's a coincidence that today worries about economic inequality are rising at the same time as worries about automation are intensifying. 
These two problems, inequality and technological unemployment, are very closely related. You know, today, the labor market is the main way that we share out economic prosperity in society. Most people's jobs are their main, if not their only, source of income. The vast inequalities that we already see around us today show that this approach is already creaking. Some people are getting far more for their efforts in the labor market than others. Technological unemployment, in my view, is just a more extreme version of that same story, but one that ends where some people receive nothing at all. So I see technological unemployment as a distributional challenge, an inequality challenge. How do we share out material prosperity in society when our traditional way of doing so, paying people for the work that they do, is less effective than in the past? And the argument that I make in the book is that I see the only response here being our larger role for the state in taking on some of the responsibility for sharing out prosperity in society. The second problem actually has very little to do with economics at all, and it's the problem of power. In the future, I think our lives are likely to become dominated, increasingly dominated, by a small number of large technology companies who are responsible for developing all these systems and machines. The argument that I make, though, is that in the 20th century, our worry might have been the economic power of large corporations, their profits, the prices, market concentration, and things like that. But I think in the 21st century, our worry is going to be far more about their political power, about their impact on things like liberty and democracy and social justice. Just one example, take Facebook. Our worries about Facebook, some people are worried about the economics of Facebook, but I think more generally people are worried about the political effects of Facebook, that Russia were able to buy ads on the platform in the 2016 presidential election, that they allow advertisers, it's said, to intentionally target ads by race, gender, and religion. Uh, that in a study of over 3,000 anti-refugee attacks in Germany, researchers found that regions with higher Facebook usage uh, experienced significantly more attacks. Now, these sorts of worries are not about economics. They're worries about politics. And that, I think, is going to be our concern increasingly in the 21st century. The final problem, and again, I don't think it has much to do with economics, is the one of meaning, the challenge of finding meaning in life. It's often said that work isn't simply a means to a wage, but it's also a source of purpose as well. And if that's right, then the challenge of technological change isn't simply that it's going to hollow out the labor market, but it might also hollow out the sense of meaning and direction that many people have in life too. And I spend a lot of time in the book thinking about this challenge and how we might rise to it. Finally, though, I want to close on a note of optimism. Why is it that in spite of all these problems and challenges, I nevertheless remain optimistic? Because the book is fundamentally an optimistic one. And I think the reason is simple, which is this, that in decades to come, technological progress is likely to solve the economic problem that has dominated humanity until now. So again, if we think of the economy as a pie, really the traditional economic challenge has been how do we make that pie large enough for everyone to live on? So at the turn of the first century AD, if you had taken the global economic pie and divided it up into equal slices for everyone in the world, everyone would have received just a few hundred dollars, uh, a few hundred of today's dollars a year. Most people lived on or around the poverty line. And if you were to roll forward a thousand years from then, roughly the same was true. But over the last few hundred years, economic growth has soared. Uh, and this growth, of course, was driven largely by technological progress. 
economic pies around the world as a result have become far, far bigger. You know, today, GDP per capita, the value of those individual slices, is already about $10,720 a year. As J.K. Galbraith put it, uh, so lyrically, I think, man has, put it like this, man has escaped for the moment the poverty which was for so long his all-embracing fate. Now, in principle, we've, those slices of the pie are now large enough for everyone to live on. And so technological unemployment, in a strange way, I think, will be a symptom of that success. In the 21st century, technological progress is going to solve one problem, the question of how to make the pie large enough for everyone to live on. But as, we, as I hope I've, I've shown you, I think it's going to replace it with three others. These problems of inequality, problems of power, and problems of purpose. And clearly there's going to be huge disagreement about what we've got to do to meet these challenges, about how we should share out prosperity, constrain the power of big tech, and provide meaning in a world with less work. But these are, I think in the final analysis, far more attractive difficulties to have to grapple with than the one that haunted our ancestors for centuries, which was how to make that pie large enough in the first place. So I will finish there. Thank you very much for your attention, and I look forward to now hearing some reflections and taking some questions as well. Thank you very much. Thank you uh, very much, Daniel. That was absolutely fascinating, and I'm going to um, monopolize you for a, a couple of minutes. After that, I'll open it up to the floor. So please get ready with your questions and put your hand up nice and high if you'd like to ask Daniel a question. First one, just to sort of personalize a bit yeah. more and tell us a bit more about you. Are yeah. you... Um, I'm a bit sort of old school and slow to take on new technology. I've still yep. got a Swatch watch, for example. Are you a kind of tech-embracing person? Do you use... Um, pieces of technology in your, in your personal life, in your working life that, that's, that save you time and, and potentially might have eradicated a job or cheapened a job in some sense? I, I, so I discriminate. I'm a, I'm a heavy use of particular technologies and, um, and try to avoid other ones. So I'm now, as of a week ago, a proud owner of the Fitbit, which is, um, um, I, I, I was saying before, it's sort of, it's probably a technology I shouldn't have got. It's telling me how much sleep I'm not getting at the moment, which is a kind of... <laughs> um, but so, so I, um, I'm not a sort of blind advocate of technologies, particular ones I like a lot and others okay. that, yeah. Okay. Um, next, I, I love a chart. I'm an economist. I love a chart. Yeah. Those charts you put up yeah. um, on agriculture and manufacturing... Yeah. Um, uh, it's not quite the way you described it in the book. I think it was in the presentation you said, well, you know, these are small parts of the, of the yeah. economy, but they're small parts of the economy now. And if we think about the sort of world of work as a sort of, as you're putting them up, I was thinking of it as kind of a territory, and the robots have come onto it, and clearly, as your chart showed, in terms of agriculture, mm. I mean, most human beings 300 years ago would have worked in the fields mm. doing agriculture. That's, that's gone away. Manufacturing's gone away. And, you know, as I'm sure many people in, in the audience did, I sort of started to sort of tense up at that point. So I, I wanted to ask two questions yeah. on the limits of encroachment, mm. which is a big part of your book and your story. And one is, are there areas where the human touch, the fact that a task is done by a human, yeah. gives us some protection? I just think, I'm sure everyone in the audience has um, ideas from their own lives, but I can think of particular teachers, 
um, that, I, that I've been taught by, um, uh, to car mechanics. Many people use therapists, particular yeah. types of hairdresser wear. I, I take your point, you make it very clearly in the book, that it's a mistake now to think that these complex uh, idiosyncratic tasks can't be done by humans. But are there some things that protect us because we actually like the fact that yeah. a human does it? I think absolutely. And, and one of the things I'm, I'm really trying to do in the book is say that you know, these worries don't depend upon some extreme view that machines will do everything in the future. I think my conclusion holds so long as machines just keep on doing more and more and more. And I, you know, I'm very clear. I think you know, there's a, there are tasks that we might for some time sim, uh, might, be, you know, might not be possible to automate, just technically not feasible. Um, there might be tasks which are possible to automate but not profitable to use the technologies. So you know, there are uh, laundry folding robots that can fold laundry far neater than me, but you know, the economics of it just doesn't make sense. You know, it's spending several thousand pounds on it. It's, it's a silly idea. So the, the fact that a machine can do something doesn't necessarily mean it's profitable to use that machine. But the final thing is that there might be some tasks that we can automate, but we would prefer human beings to do nevertheless. And, and this is the category I think you're getting at. And, and these are things where we not only care about the outcome, but we also care about the process. So you know, a trivial example, um, there was an outcry when it, it turned out that some Michelin star restaurants were using coffee capsule machines um, to make coffee. Diners were furious. Uh, now, they, they weren't furious because the coffee tastes worse. You know, in fact, in blind tests, actually, people often struggle to distinguish between capsule-based coffee and barista stuff. What, what they were objecting to was that, they, that the craft was missing. They wanted someone to, you know, open the bag and have the fresh breath of the coffee and, you know, the pad of the tamper and the whir and, you know, the craft of being a coffee. They, and, and that was missing and they didn't like the fact that it had been automated away. They valued the, the way in which the coffee was made and not simply how it mm. tasted. And, you know, that's a prosaic example, but it's true in perhaps education or healthcare where we don't care necessarily just how much someone achieves in school or what particular health co- outcome someone has but that the fact it's uh, you know, a, a fellow human being doing the educating or somebody sitting, somebody animate sitting by the bedside. And I think so long as there are activities where we value the way in which things are done as well as the outcome itself, um, those tasks are going to be very hard to automate. And, you, know, you, know, you walk into the Sistine Chapel and you look at the ceiling and you think, gosh, not only is that beautiful, but you also think, isn't it amazing a human being did that? And so long as we, so long as we value human beings in that way, um, um, I think those tasks will prove very hard to automate. But, but, but it is interesting, you know, this, this general trend where we see these systems and machines performing tasks in very different ways means that we might be able to perform tasks that require, say, empathy from a human being, but to do it differently. I mean, one example... I write in the book about Joseph Weizenbaum, who was one of the founding fathers of, of artificial intelligence, and he, he built a system in uh, the 1970s called ELISA, and you mentioned therapy, which is why I thought of it. And, and ELISA was designed to act like a psychoanalyst. So you'd sit down with ELISA, and he built it as a bit of a joke. You'd sit down with ELISA, and it would say, how are you feeling? 
and you'd say, I'm feeling well, and it would say, are you really feeling well? And you'd have this kind of back and forth. It was basically parodying the sort of predictable way in which uh, a therapist might act. And anyway, he, he did this, and he called his secretary in, who knew full well the sort of slightly playful spirit in which the thing had been built. She sat down with the system, and after, I think it was about two or three questions, turned round to Joseph and said, I'd like you to leave the room. Um, you know, she felt more comfortable with this machine than mm. she did with a human being. And, and, and Weizenbaum writes in the book about how this deeply troubled him. He thought that there was something, as many of us do instinctively think, that there's something intrinsically human to the sorts of interactions that we go to therapists for. But actually, the system suggested it might not be the case. And that could potentially change over time as yeah. well with tastes. Okay, so, but at least there are some areas, we think, where humans might still be the best choice. I, I, think, I, think, I think huge areas. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. But, but then a second sort of line of, of defense, um, uh, or, or maybe not defense, and that, that's kind of my question, and then I'll open it up. So there's some areas where we still might be the best. There's potentially a whole load of areas um, where we're just the cheapest. Mm. We're just the best choice in a, in a brutal economic sense yeah. because, because we're cheaper. Now, that's something you, you, you talk about in a big way, and it leads into one of your problems, inequality. Yeah. So I wondered if there are sort of two or three things when we look across history or we look at the moment where we can tell um, we're, at, we're at risk of becoming employed just for that reason. Yeah. Because, as you say, if you're employed solely because you're cheaper than the machine, you're not better, yeah. then you're at real risk of the kind of wage inequality problems you yeah. talk about. I mean, I think a great example of this is, do you, do you remember how maybe 15, 20 years ago there were mechanical car washes everywhere with the sort of whirring, right? And yet today there are very few. And if you look at the numbers, the number of mechanical car washes has, has fallen through the floor. Now, the, the car wash association, the sort of... Uh, um, say that the reason for this is the accession of lots of Eastern European uh, countries, 2003-2004, led to a large influx of um, workers who were willing to work at a very low wage, and in a sense, they displaced these machines. You know, what we have now today are car washes staffed by people. So how did they compete? They competed by undercutting on cost, and, and, and that's my... I think one of the things we do that's quite unhelpful when we think about the future of work is we talk in terms of jobs alone. We're, we're obsessed with unemployment. That's the, that's the sort of metric that we all look at. And we point, to high we point to low unemployment figures around the world and say, there's no problem here. Technology isn't having an impact on the labor market. But, but clearly, a decline in the demand for labor doesn't just show up in the number of jobs, but also the pay of the jobs, the quality of the jobs, the status of the jobs. And I think you know, it's possible that we, we could, um, if, if we only think in terms of jobs, we might miss the harmful effects that technology is already having on work today um, by just being too high a level. Fascinating. Okay, let's um, have some questions. Okay, there are loads already. So I'm going to group them in three in case any overlap. Um, so we'll start down here at the front, in the middle, please. And then just, I'll do it kind of by banks so we don't have to wait for things. So I will come to you. So um, one, two, and then three there. 
Daniel, thank you very much uh, for a very interesting talk. Um, obviously, what, what your book raises um, is very much what also, I think, when your, your previous book with you and your father, is the relationship between income and, and remuneration, um, and, and also the, 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 then also looking at the, the sense of, um, I suppose, ownership of, of these technologies, you know, sort of, and then you know, sort of moving into, into a sort of sense of, of, of being a common good, and, and even then moving to common ownership of these technologies as well. I just wondering if you can comment on that. That. Mm. And then just behind you on the right, just this gentleman here with the scarf. This is really a, probably a very quick observation rather than a question. Um, I'm a computer programmer, but uh, despite that, there's still an irony about the, uh, the way that Google have a machine which can beat anything and anybody at chess. Because it seems to me this misses the whole point of chess, which is it is a human activity. Uh, and, and so this achievement by Google is, in effect, to my mind, the perfect metaphor for the draining of meaning from human existence, which technology can threaten. Okay. Uh, and then round the gentleman at the end with his hand really high. The premium on getting your hand high. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Can I ask my question? Sorry, where did that come from? As I said at the start, I'm going to do it by row to avoid time taking the thing around. So thanks for that comment. Can I ask my question? Thanks, Daniel. Two questions. Uh, question first is about the accountability and how we perceive justice. When things go wrong, we look for someone to blame. And we talk about you know machine driving car. Let's say it's off, often raised. If the car, if that machine driving car knocked down someone, we look for someone to take the hits on in court you know we can't just uh, we can't just unplug the computer that's the only thing we can do to you know to say accountability to a pc i mean m machine i mean can machine eventually takes you know accountability and do we have to you know change our definition of how do how to redefine just and second question i bring up to your point about you know the uh, effects of inequality and about uh, you know Empathy is what human is skilled, and we see that. I want to say that we did see that bring the points that uh, we becomes um, some human have to take the emotional hit. You know, you know. For instance, we know that Facebook employs lots of those people to screen all those harmful content, and they all become very depressed and suicidal or something. We get to the point that you know some of those really unequal and disadvantaged people they are left to take the hit of those emotional hits because they use their empathy to screen out all those bad things and nasty things that this world unfortunately generates more and more. Is that a way to look at it, the inequality side as well? Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. So we had common ownership as a kind of defense to this um, income inequality problem. A bit of a point, but I guess it's a question, it's something you talk about importantly, meaning, threat to meaning, and then responsibility and accountability. You comment mm. on those? The, the accountability question's really interesting. The, the, the story that immediately popped to mind was the early days of Google's driverless car when it was um, driving along the road um, in California and it was speeding and it was pulled over by the, the highway patrol and the question was, who does the ticket go to? Um, and I mean, the, the, the boring answer is that these, these are new... Um, and interesting and puzzling legal questions. And at least in this country, uh, they'll be worked out through the common law. There's just, it's just going to be lots of interesting and uh, novel cases where we're going to have to try and identify where the burden of responsibility lies. Um, 
I think the question of chess and meaning is very interesting. I mean, what, what jumped to mind, though, of course, was that um, if you think of someone like Magnus, Magnus Carlsen, even though a chess computer could beat him uh, at chess in the sense that um, uh, machines are better than human beings at the game, nevertheless, when he plays... You know, millions of people uh, go on online to watch him because the, it, it goes to the point that we were talking about. That that's a good example of an activity where we don't just value the outcome itself, uh, namely um, um, who, who or what wins, but also who's doing the winning and what's doing the winning. And 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 that, I think that's, that's, a, that's a good example of that. Uh, that it's, it's how the game is played, not simply the outcome itself. I don't think in our working lives, though, necessarily, there are... Um, uh, I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of the tasks and activities that we do in our lives don't really have that characteristic. Um, and, that, and that, I suppose, is one of the challenges in the book. The question of common ownership is very interesting. Um, the... As I said, I think the big economic challenge in the 21st century is one of distribution. How do we share our income in society when our traditional way of doing so, paying people for the work that they do in the labor market, is less effective? And the response that I have is that if we can't rely on the labor market, we need the state to take a larger role in doing it, partly by sharing our income, but also, as you hint, by also sharing our ownership in these increasingly valuable types of capital as well. It's why I'm quite interested in things like uh, citizen wealth funds, the idea that the state might take a stake in some of these technologies on behalf of, 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 of the citizens who are affected by them. So I think, yeah, I'll take them. Okay, let's have some more questions. Uh, at the end of the row, just behind the, the previous questioner on the left there. Hi, thank you. Um, I've been working in the technology industry for the last 20 years and currently working actually on a program which looks at automating key activities within the workforce. So significant transformational change there. My question is broader, though. Um, I'm really interested to, to understand from you, do you see this as a form of liberation as well for humans? Um, if you look at the world of work, um, some of it's very value-add, a lot of it often isn't. Um, it's a lot of the work is surrounding effectively the means of production within offices as well. Um, and then the second thing is, if it is a liberation, is there an element of gender? So bringing it back to the point that the gentleman made earlier, the comment he made about hearing from women, I think from a female perspective, it's really interesting, the, the notion of how we're valued as humans in society, and indeed the distribution of wealth, and I think is that going to be more of a challenge for a male identity? Further up the row, on the right, further up, further up there. Thanks. Um, I wanted to ask a question both about meaning and distribution, or rather not meaning, but morality. Um, there's quite an entrenched view um, that I think goes back to kind of Max Weber and the Protestant work ethic, that, that work is morally good. Um, you see it kind of played out in uh, politicians using terms such as strivers, shirkers, uh, and particularly directed against people who, um, who uh, get money redistributed from, from the welfare state. I was wondering whether 
um, the failure of universal basic income experiments, um, which could be seen as a, as a precursor to deal with worklessness due to automation, um, have failed to kind of really take hold or to scale because they are seen as morally and potentially politically unpalatable rather than economically unfeasible. Okay, let's take those two because they're really yeah. quite big. Um, the first one is um, you, the question of liberation. Again, one of your charts, you had um, agriculture. Yeah. People once toiled in the fields. We had the threat of, of starvation. That's gone. So how much of this is to do with liberation? And then on UBI, can you yeah. comment on that? And just in case anyone in the audience doesn't know about UBI, maybe give us a definition of sure. how that would work and why it might have failed. Sure. On, on the liberation point, I think, um, I think there's certainly a narrative which is that, and I, I address this explicitly in the book, which is that the promise of these technologies is that it's going to liberate us from boring, repetitive, dull work and will be free to do the sorts of things that really make us human. That's the that's kind of tagline that you often hear. And it's baked into the language that we use. I mean, the word robot itself comes from the Czech word robota, which means slavery or drudgery. You know, the idea is that technology relieves us from doing this. Uh, and what I try and do in the book is show that I actually just I don't think that's right. Um, that actually, um, if you think of lots of the non-routine activities that these systems and machines currently struggle to do, it's far from evident that the sorts of things that intrinsically give people meaning and purpose and identity. It's not obvious to me why it is that the work that these systems and machines can't do is necessarily more meaningful than the work they can do. I just, I just don't see it in when I look at the... Uh, so I, I'm sort of sceptical of the idea that this is a sort of liberation story, um, at least in the sense of liberating us from work that we don't want to do. I think the work that remains isn't necessarily... Um, but the, the gender issue is very interesting, and particularly because many of the tasks and activities, as I sort of hinted at in the talk, many of the roles that involve those tasks and activities are uh, often predominantly done by women. And there is, um, I think, a great, and I explore this in the book, at the moment there's this great mismatch between the social value of that work, which tends to be very high, and the market value of that work, which tends to be very low. Uh, and so, and I see that as there's an interesting opportunity to try and, if we're thinking about sharing out prosperity in society through other mechanisms other than through the labour market, well then there's an interesting opportunity to sort of address that mismatch. Um, the issue of, of work and, and, and meaning and identity is something I, I, I'm sort of completely fascinated by. So I spent a lot of time in the book looking at that. And um, just in response to what, what you say, I mean, you go back to ancient times and you can see a very different relationship between um, work and meaning. You know, in the um, uh, ancient Egyptian city of uh, Thebes, you were banned from seeking uh, political office if you'd engaged in trade or work for the past 10 years. You know, for both Plato and Aristotle, work was a sort of prohibitively grubby affair. The only way to get meaning and purpose was to, you know, through some sort of leisure activity and, 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 and the, so I, I, and if you look today at the sense of if you look at polls YouGov did one recently on um, uh, on how many people in the country get a sense of meaning and purpose from their work uh, I think 25% said they didn't so I, th I think this relationship between work and meaning is far more um, 
uh, ambiguous and it's changed over time. And, uh, and I spent a lot of time investigating in the book. That the issue of the UBI is very interesting. I mean, the, and the problem with it, just very simply, what is a, a universal basic income? Well, it's, the reason why it's interesting in this setting is, is because if the labor market becomes less effective at sharing out prosperity, then a universal basic income, which is uh, an income at some basic level, which is paid to everyone, universal, independent of whether or not they're in work. Well, that's quite a, you know, intuitively appealing response to the failure of the labor market to share our income in society. My worry, though, with the universal basic income is the worry that you sort of hinted at, which is that while it might solve the distribution problem, how do we share our income in society, it doesn't solve the contribution problem, which is uh, a feeling that everybody is sort of put putting something into the collective pot in some way. You know, traditionally, exactly as you say, uh, social solidarity comes from a sense that everyone's making an economic contribution to society. They're either in work and making a contribution through the taxes that they pay, or they're out of work. Uh, and they're expected to actively look for work and train for work if they're willing and able to do so. Uh, the challenge in a world with less work is how we maintain that sense of social solidarity when there might not be those opportunities those economic opportunities to pay into the collective pot. And so what I argue for is not a universal basic income, but a conditional basic income, where instead we try and recognize lots of non-economic activities that people do and say, look, these are also worthy and important contributions to society. It might sound radical, but you know, if you think about volunteering, for instance, about 15 million people already volunteer in the UK. It's a sector worth about... 50 billion pounds, which is more than our energy industry. Hugely valuable, non-economic activity. Perhaps those are the sorts of things that we can recognize. And so, yeah, exact, those are very much the themes that I'm interested in and I'm exploring. Okay, we've got seven more minutes, so let's have another round of questions. Um, right up at the back, three people. Those three, one, two, three. Yep. And then orange T-shirts in the middle and two in front of there. Yeah, thank you. Thank Thank you very much for your talk. Um, I wanted to question your optimism a little. Yeah. Uh, Keynes very famously in the 1930s in Opportunities for Our Grandchildren says, we will have a, there will shortly not be enough work. He's looking back over the last 100 years of extraordinary increases in productivity, modern economic growth, and he says, very shortly, we'll, there'll only be 15 hours of work per week. We will have, we will have 100 years to get used to this. By the time it's the era of my great grandchildren, we will be eking the the bread out on the butter. And he he thought that maybe the economic problem had been solved as well. But over the last hundred years since then, despite ever-increasing improvements to productivity, we have reliably converted our gains to technological efficiency and production into additional consumption rather than additional leisure. And my question to you is whether that is being driven by policy or whether you lean towards the, the, the response of an economist, which is to say that we have a preference for wildly increasing consumption. Um, Orange T-shirt, yeah, great. Yeah, so go ahead. go ahead. So my question is about the qualitative and quantitative impact of actually adapting to this technological change. 
So it might be a bit of a geeky reference, but if you think of the normal distribution, if the increase in the technological cognitive load was four IQ points in the field, so going from manually picking fruit to using some type of machine, and those four IQ points spanned the third and second standard deviation away from the average IQ. When you move up to the point where they span the second to the first standard deviation, the number of people affected effectively be, who become um, redundant and marginalized to competing with, let's say, um, an automatic car wash by lowering their wage progressively increases. So while we might be producing more, that effectively disenfranchises more and more people from having a secure claim and being able to keep up and feeling that they are part of this new system. The qualitative aspect of which is you invest, even if you have the temperament and the intelligence to invest in a new skill set to be current, you have to deal with the stress, the strain, the... Um, the, 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 the difficulty maintaining the temperament to actually, uh, to actually adapt. Have you given that sort of consideration and looked at quantitatively what that impact is? Okay, thank you. Hi. Um, okay. Um, good evening. Um, I actually work in local government, and um, I was actually listening very carefully to all the points you were making. And I've got a very interesting question I'd like to ask you. In the private sector, arguably, you can say there are a lot of capital resources, if you think about the Oracles and the Microsofts and the Apples of this world. And then in the middle, if you think of the government sector, we have very limited resources because we're constrained by things like the, the, the uh, deficit, etc., etc., and that can apply to both the USA and the United Kingdom. And then on the other side, you've got the non-profit sector. So the question I wanted to ask you is, there's obviously a lot of capital in the private sector where technology is being arguably driven forward within an economy, particularly within the private sector, where you want to have the technological change. But then in the government sector and the non-profit sector, they haven't got those kind of big resources to buy that kind of technological sell to enable to make these changes that you're talking about. So in some ways you can talk about maybe inequality there and um, thinking of the, the NHS and government as big machines, how do you actually see the big picture in terms of technology and how it impacts people going forward? Okay, three, another three great questions. As an economist, I'd just like to double down on the first one, which is the, the Keynes. Yeah. Um, that essay is absolutely fantastic. It's very short. It's called The Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. Fascinating. So why, when we have the opportunity yeah. to cut the amount of work we yeah. do and get this leisure-based society, why haven't we? The, 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 um, I'll just briefly try and unpack that, the, the, the one about qualitative and quantitative because it had the normal distribution. So I think what was being said was when the, the effect has a kind of bell-shaped um, distribution, when you're taking on new technologies at the very frontier, at the margin, you might only be affecting a few people. As those kind of encroach, you're affecting more and more and more people. What are the impacts both quantitatively and kind of psychologically of that? And then the third one is simply 
another way of guessing, putting it, I guess, do we just need to shift the capital? We've got so much capital with the likes of Google and Facebook and so on. Do we need perhaps a big new kind of tax model to shift that back into the public sector so it can be spent? Mm. So I'll, I'll start backwards. I mean, on, on that question, I mean, it's... <clears throat> I write in the book about a concern that, exactly as you articulate, that this increasingly valuable capital is concentrated in the hands of diminishingly small numbers of large technology companies, and that is a challenge in my mind. I mean, it's also... I mean, the discussions about the... Uh, productivity paradox, for instance, which is, you know, why, given all this remarkable technological progress, we don't see it in the productivity statistics, which are supposed to measure that progress. One response to that paradox or that puzzle is exactly as you said, which is that actually these technologies are at the moment only being used in very particular parts of the, very narrow parts of the economy. So, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with both the observations that you made. Um, on the second question, um, the thing that really jumped out to me was the mention of education um, as, a, as a policy response and, and the implications for education. That's uh, one of the worries that I have is that while in the 20th century education might have been a useful or a very effective policy response to help displaced workers into new work. Um, my worry is that in the 21st century, the skills gap, for some of the reasons that you're hinting at, uh, is going to be far larger, uh, and that it simply might not be possible. You know, traditionally, policymakers treat education as a sort of manna from heaven, that it's a sort of easy thing that people can do. They can just sort of relatively seamlessly and costlessly retrain and reskill and whatever. Education is very difficult, and I think it's becoming more and more difficult when we look at the skills and capabilities that are increasingly valuable. So I'm quite skeptical about the idea of education as a sort of panacea for thinking about the sorts of changes that are taking place. I mean, Keynes and that essay, it's something I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, and, and if you have a look at the book, you'll see... Um, that some of the arguments that I'm making are sort of almost direct responses to, to Keynes. Um, I think, in one sense, Keynes was right. <clears throat> he, he was right in 1930 when he said that in 100 years' time, uh, the economic pie will be large enough for everyone to live on. He was right in that sense, because uh, you know, before his time is up, already the slices of, those, of the pie are about $11,000. You know, we're approaching the level at which it's true that you know, there is enough for everyone to live on. What Keynes really neglected, though, was that that pie doesn't automatically slice itself up. Um, he neglected, in that essay, the distributional challenge of how, given all this prosperity, we manage to share it out so that everyone is able to enjoy it. Um, and... So he ignored, I think, in his writing, this distribution problem, which is the problem that we really face now. Not one of prosperity, but one of how we share out that prosperity. Um, the second mistake I think he made was that in his work, he framed it as a sort of choice that people would choose um, leisure because there'd be so much prosperity that they, you know, why would they need to work? And, and the argument that I make in the book is quite different. It's not one of choice, but it's one of, um, uh, you know, sort of 
force, compulsion. It's not people won't, it's not that people will cease to work because they choose to take up leisure, but it's that people will cease to work because there may not be enough well-paid work for everyone to do. And that's quite a different argument to the one that Keynes was making about consumption and leisure and uh, income. And, and, um, I, and I think the issue of how people spend their t- spare time becomes important, not because people choose to take more spare time because we're more prosperous, but because people might be forced to take more spare time because there might not be enough well-paid work for everyone to do. So those, I think, are the two directions in which I, I uh, diverge from that great essay. Okay, well, it's Saturday afternoon, and I think it's high time we let you finish uh, doing your work, Daniel. Um, Daniel will be around. I can see there are a few more people with questions. Daniel will be, will be around outside. Uh, there are books on sale, and um, he's going to be signing them, and I'm sure he'd be happy to have a, a brief chat with anyone with a further question. And I'd just like to thank him for visiting us here at the LSE. Thank you very much.